Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of the Let It Shine podcast. Uh, today, I am joined with Alan Giglio. Alan, that is how I you pronounce your last name, correct? Is it Giglio? Yeah, I, I think so, man. It, okay. <laughs> I've heard different, different ways pronouncing it, but yeah, I think you got it right. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, first off, welcome all the way from, is it sunny out in California right now? It's kind of cloudy. Okay. But it's it's nice. It's like uh, 75 degrees outside. Oh, man. Right now in Ohio, we have like 50 degrees and it's like overcast and raining. So, <laughs> uh, man, the sunny California would sound would sound nice right now. So for those of you who don't know Alan, um, Alan and I met um, while I was out in L.A. Uh, serving with Choice Books. Alan joined the team there at Choice Books uh, and he got to ride along with me or I got to ride along with him for a few days. Uh, I got to Got to know you at least a little bit, and yeah, you started just sharing some of your story and what God has been doing in your life and has done in your life, just growing up and and everything. And yeah, it was very powerful and an inspiration to me. Uh, so I figured I'd bring you on and, and allow you to share with with my friends and listeners here on the podcast as well. Um, so yeah, thank you for for taking the time to do this. Um, so usually, how I open the interview and the first question I usually ask is, "What, Alan? What is your?" What's like the first memory uh, that you can remember as a child? And it doesn't even have to be like a certain age or whatever. When I ask that question, what's like the first thing that pops into your head? It can be completely random. Uh, it could be profound and yeah, whatever you want it to be, I guess, answer the question however you wish. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, well, I remember the first memory comes to mind is when I was, I must've been one or two, man. Cause I was, I remember I was barely learning how to walk and just my dad coming home um, bringing some uh, wooden uh, airplanes and just me feeling the excitement of seeing him walk in through the door and giving me those uh, those uh, wooden airplanes and that's it <laughs> <laughs> nice nice that's uh yeah it's interesting how something like like that just a very um, tender and special moment can pop out in our minds um, yeah thank you thank you for sharing that with us so just kind of as an opening to get a broad overview uh, tell us a little bit about your, your growing up years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I was born in, in Jalisco, so it's Mexico. I was born in Jalisco. And, uh, um, you know, in Mexico, uh, single mom. So my dad and my mom had been married for 10 years, but then um, I'm the youngest out of three. I have two older sisters. Uh, when I was born, my parents separated. And... Uh, um, and so I was raised with my grandma, my aunt. My mom was always working multiple jobs to try to uh, support us. Uh, and um, yeah, and so I lived in Mexico all the way till eight. It was a rough, it was a rough environment because I had two uncles that I lived with, and they were they just weren't a good influence. Um, you know, there were there was a lot of violence in my house as a kid, uh, a lot of alcohol, drugs, and so. My mom really wanted to get us out of there, so she brought us to the U.S. to look for a better, better future uh, for my two sisters and I. And I was eight when I came to the U.S. and uh, and then that's where that's when I I lived in in L.A. So I west I, I grew up in uh, West L.A. Yeah, 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 man. So very good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so you're eight, you move move to LA. What's it like moving from like Mexico to LA? I'm, I'm assuming it's a like a culture shock, so to speak. I mean, I know there's parts of LA that might feel a little bit like Mexico, um, but it's 
obviously probably a, a different, different culture. What was going through your mind and kind of how did it feel moving from Mexico to LA? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was, it was like a bittersweet. So it was, um, so I missed everybody from Mexico and my grandma and my aunt were the ones that raised me out there. They really cultivated a lot of love in me. And so I was always with them. Uh, they, they, uh, they really loved me. But when I came to the U S it was a game changer because I was always alone. My mom had three jobs to try to support my two sisters and I. Um, so she was, she wanted to be with us, but she was never home. So I was always in the street because my sisters, there was, they were in school and uh, uh, they had a part-time job. Uh, so I was always by myself. Uh, so there was a lot of gang violence around the neighborhood where I grew up with. Um, so there was a lot of drugs. Uh, it was fun as a kid because I was eight. Those are those like 20 kids in my neighborhood were always playing all day, every day. <laughs> so it was fun. That part was fun. But at the same time, it was tough um, because it was in a good environment. And, um, and yeah, I mean, as I grew a little older, um, started, I got addicted to drugs at 14, started, first started smoking weed. Then I started, uh, you know, just doing other hard, a little bit hard, harder drugs, started drinking a lot of alcohol and then, uh, yeah, 14, I was addicted. And so, uh, and my mom, I mean, she was, she wanted to help me, but she had to pay the bills. And so being a single mom is just really, really, really tough. Uh, mm -hmm. so so that was that was what it was like um, being out here in in LA, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so <clears throat> as far as um, growing up in in the west side of LA, you you'd mentioned there's a lot of a lot of gang violence going on, um, and you mentioned like you became addicted to drugs um, at the age of 14, which um, probably for most of us country people is like very young. Um, but in the city like that, that can be probably even earlier than that is, is when kids are introduced to drugs, just they've grown up with it. There's, there's, you know, it's just kind of a normal thing. What, I guess, is that kind of what the invitation was um, to, to try out drugs? It was just like everybody else is doing it. It's kind of just a, a culture thing a known thing to do, or I guess what, what to you was the appeal um, and yeah, kind of that process and how you became addicted, I guess. Yeah, I just, I, I started getting very curious. So uh, in my neighborhood, uh, when uh, when I got there, uh, some of the older people that were in gangs, uh, I never I never got into a gang. I just used to do graffiti. Mm. I love the, the adrenaline of getting into a build, climbing up a billboard or, or getting chased by cops, you know? And, um, but when I got there as a kid, some of the older gang members uh, used to force some of my friends my my friend <clears throat> to do uh drug deliveries mm. and um and so uh, but they they would never do them but then I, when i was 14 i started getting curious so i spoke to some of my friends and i i uh, i i got us to <laughs> to try them together and that kind of started a, a trend in our neighborhood with the teens with the people my age and um, yeah, it was just curiosity. I was mm -hmm. broken. I always had this longing to be loved by my dad and longing to be, to have a family, longing to have my mom, but it just, life was tough. And, and, uh, um, and it wasn't anything 
it wasn't like my mom's bad decisions and she just could, she had to pay bills. So you have to work, you have to, you know, and my dad was never there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's usually like, a, a, so for, for Mexicans that come to, to the U S not all the time, but a lot of the, a lot of the time, the parents and immigrants, the, the parents, they come looking for a better future for their, their kids. And when they come to the U S they don't speak the language they don't, you know, a lot of times they don't, they don't know a lot of people. So they get the toughest jobs, especially in, in LA. And a lot of times these jobs don't pay well. So they have to work extra hours. And a lot of times the parents aren't home. And when the parents aren't home, the, the kids, they have this longing. It's, it's embedded in us to want to be belong to something, to want to be loved by dad or mom. And so we find this in the wrong places. And a lot of times it's in the street in the street there's like all this junk going on mm. and so it, it, it you know my story it, um i say it will be a typical la story because it you know it happens all the time you know and and so um it just so happened that god had mercy on me and uh and he transformed my life and so but but that's what happened i mean yeah 14 started using drugs kept using um started getting to harder drugs um, I started selling them, um, for a friend and then, um, I ended up, um, going to, to, to get in house arrest for four months. I mean, I was always getting into fights, um, it, you know, and, and, and it was just, it was just, it was just bad. And, and, and so that's, yeah, that's mm. what it was. Mm. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned, um, that you were, you were seeking the approval and the love of, your, your, both your mother and your father. Um, I, I'm sure that a lot of us can relate to that, like even, even growing up and especially for us men, like we need that approval and that love from a father and not to have that, that father figure in your life must've been hard. Did you have any type of like communication, um, connection at all with your father, um, growing up or was it just absolutely none? You know, I met him at eight before I came to the U S I met, that's when I met him. I mean, I have that memory of when I was one or two, but after that memory, I have no memories with him until eight. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a, I wouldn't, I mean, I didn't know him. So it was just strange. I had this longing to know him. I had this longing to, to be with him, but uh, you know, I came to the U S sometimes maybe like once every six months, he will call me. Um, but it was just strange because I, I just didn't, he was a stranger to me. I didn't have this relationship with him. Um, so he would try, I think I would try to, but it was just, it was just strange. So, so I didn't really, I, I didn't have a, a relationship with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. by this time he had another family. So. Gotcha. Yeah. And yeah. so um, you'd mentioned, yeah, that the, the influence of just like the, the street lifestyle, the gang, gang violence, um, Explain to us a little bit. I remember um, you were very kind in, in explaining to me how gangs in L.A. worked um, while we were doing choice books together a day or two. Um, and for many of us, like the only, I guess, idea or vision we have of that is just what we watch um, from Hollywood or, yeah, what we hear and read in books. Um, explain to us naive ones that don't understand, um, like, how do how do gangs actually work? Is it anything like the movies at all or do they just get it completely wrong or yeah how how does it work like what makes a gang tick i guess yeah i mean i mean i think the movies a lot of times they're they got they they get it right i mean a a lot of times 
I used to go to school and I was even in middle school. I remember the first time I went to my middle school, the first day uh, I see a, a kid pulling out a shank on another kid. Yeah, <laughs> that was the first day. Wow. Yeah, and um, the middle school that I went to, there was a lot of kids that will go from the, the projects. Um, so it's like section eight. So it's for lower income communities. And uh, <clears throat> and um, you, I was always mindful of the type of clothes that I was wearing because you can't wear certain colors in certain areas. Uh, because if you do, then you can get in trouble because then, then uh, they'll think that you're from a different gang, from a rival gang. And uh, I mean, I mean, when I was the first time I came to, to the U.S. and at eight years old, I remember uh, like two blocks away from my house. I went to go eat at a restaurant with my uncle. And for some reason, I was just looking outside the window and across the street, I see a guy wearing blue coming out of a store. And then I see a, a car pulling up with a red rack and the, he comes out and he just shoots the other guy and he just kills him. Like I was, I was eight <laughs> mm, wow. and that was the first time I saw someone getting shot. Um, and, um, and yeah, and I mean, I remember he was following them, shooting them and, and those colors. So just because of what, what they were wearing. So I was always mindful of that in middle school. And when you're involved in, when the neighborhood is like that, it's hard not to get involved. It's, it's like, it, even though you don't, you, you don't want to get involved, it just sucks you in, man. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it's like, a, it's a vicious cycle that's uh, in these communities. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it is. And I mean, in my neighborhood, I remember across the street, there was a drive-by once. I mean, I, I remember being outside, outside of my, my apartment and um, being hanging out with a friend. And these guys coming up to us, pulling up, pulling out a gun to our heads. I mean, asking us if we gangbanged, but we didn't. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was the, the every day. Every day I had to be watching my back because mm. you just never knew what was going to happen. And um, yeah, and so sadly, it's, it's changed a lot, but it's still, it's still, it, gangs are still very active. It just looks a little different, but, but mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah. So, and you, you touched on a subject. And I remember you explaining to me and something that really connected with me um, when talking about gangs, because something I was always curious about is like how, like, even from a young age, you can see the, the destruction and the violence that it causes. Like, how do, why do people join gangs? But you, you kind of brought it out a little bit. It's almost like a part of their identity and growing up. They're just so, um, I guess, um, surrounded by all of that. Like they don't know any different um then then you know joining the gang it's almost yeah like a part of part of who they are um and for a lot of the listeners here on the podcast like we yeah we might find our identity in well obviously we don't have a lot of gangs around here but like something alan something that the the mennonites find a lot of their identity in is like their occupation what they do as an occupation because it, it involves um it's probably like a generational occupation where uh, my father did this, my grandfather did this, so I'm going to do this as well. Um, so like family and occupation could almost be sort of compared to that as well. Like we just grow up in it. Um, that's kind of who we are, what we do. Um, and so I remember, yeah, you explaining that to me, it, it made a lot more sense than um, surrounding the whole, the whole gang subject. Um, so I guess taking this a little bit of a different direction, growing up, what type of um, 
I guess, religious background did you have at all? Um, did your did your family were your family Catholic or any type? Like, did you ever go to church? What What did you think about God? I guess growing up. Yeah, in, in Mexico, the the I mean, it, it's part of the culture to be a Catholic. So I remember as a kid, I would, you know, my my mom, my grandma, they would take me to uh, to Catholic church, and I wish that was so boring. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but uh, so but I believed in God. I, I knew that there was a God. I remember when I was eight, and uh, I I prayed. I remember it was it's so clear in my mind. I prayed hard. I said, God, like I just want to meet my dad before I came to the U.S. Mm. And I remember it happened. And it was the first, you know, the first time where I felt like, man, God, God hears me. Uh, and then when I came to the U.S., um, I had some neighbors that were uh, uh, Christian. And I remember I had my first encounter with God when I was, uh, I must have been, I don't remember. I was young, though. I was 10 or 12. I was super excited. I saved up to buy me a Bible. Uh, but then my family, you know, my mom just couldn't take me to church. She Cause she had to work same thing. And um, so I just stopped going to church and it, you know, it, it didn't, I didn't get too far, <laughs> mm. but yeah. So, so we grew up Catholic and throughout my whole life, even, even as I was getting into trouble, I remember there would be times where I'll be home alone. And, uh, and as guys, I mean, we acqu acquire our identity from our fathers. Mm -hmm. So since I didn't have that dad, I looked for a father figure unconsciously elsewhere. And that's the same. It's the same cycle. And, and the lack of fathers a lot of times is, is a, it's a huge problem. Mm. And, and um, I, I tell people, man, I was, I was a demon child. <laughs> <laughs> like I had all the ingredients uh, for me to either be in jail right now or be dead. Um, but God's mercy show, showed up at 19 when I was 19, right? Just completely transformed my life. But um, but yeah, I mean, that's the, that's a huge problem out here. Um, the, mm. the lack of fathers. And so, but I always had that belief in God. And I remember there'll be times where I'll be by myself at home and I would get drunk by myself and I would just be crying out to God. Like, why did I have to go through all these things? If you're so real, why? Uh, cause I, a lot of bad stuff happened in my life growing up. Um, and so, I will question God, like, if you're real, why did I have to go through all this pain uh, and all this suffering? And, um, and, and that's another reason why I, I looked for drugs. It, it was an outlet. It was an escape code to, to make mm. me kind of forget my reality and, um, and just try to get away. And in the end, there I was just a broken kid, you know, mm. broken kid uh, that just needed love and needed help. And needed a dash. And and it's the same thing for a lot of the, the people out here in LA. So Yeah, yeah. No, and I can I can definitely relate to that. Like even anywhere, like I mentioned earlier, it's it's like that anywhere. Um, you know, we all we all seek and and try to find that that either the father figure or that parent figure. Um, and we just yeah, we all want love and yeah, it is it is sad to yeah, I, I just see even around our community, like you don't have to live in a big city to not have a father. Um, you know, even, even some of the conservative Christian people um, grew up without, without dads and they almost get overlooked um, because you're Christian, you're supposed to have a dad. And, and it's not sadly in this, and yeah, where we're at now is like, it's not always the, the case. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that has laid heavy on my heart already. So 
here you are. Uh, you mentioned, you know, during your teenage years, um, you got addicted to drugs, uh, just really searching and, and trying to find out, you know, what, what life's all about, trying to find that affirmation. Um, and then you, you hinted at it at 19, uh, God transformed your life. Tell us a little bit more about, about that and, and how that took place. Yeah. So, uh, uh, 19, um, my sister had been going to a church for a year and, uh, and, um, and I started seeing a change in her and her husband, her husband, same story, her husband, um, he didn't, he, um, he grew up without a dad. He was involved in gangs. He was involved in gangs. He was, he was more hardcore, but then I started seeing a change in them and then she invited me to the church. And so I go, I remember the pastor gave an invitation to go to a, a, a retreat. And so I went, I was 19 and, uh, in that retreat, everything changed. The first night I was, uh, we're on our way to the, to the camp. And I was thinking, man, what am I doing here? I should have been home getting high or something. <laughs> and, uh, that first night, uh, pastor, the pastor talks about, um, um, um Luke Bartimaeus, the blind man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I started thinking, huh, that sounds very familiar, I thought, uh, because in one, of, I think in Luke, it talks about how people that were following Jesus kind of rejected him. And so I thought that sounds like Christians nowadays, like they, they look over, they, like I feel looked over by a lot of Christians, mm. uh, kind of reject this. But then I thought, but Jesus did the opposite. Jesus actually call, called the blind man and healed them. So I thought, this is interesting because I thought Christians are hypocrites, but maybe this man, Jesus, wasn't. Yeah, and then uh, um, so I'm, I'm there Friday and I think, well, maybe Jesus is different than these Christians, right? <laughs> Christians seem to, seem to me a little like hypocrites. So the pastor invited us to go to the front. I go to the front and, uh, um, and, uh, and I said, Jesus, if you're real, show me that you're real. If you're not, I want nothing to do with this religion. And I said, Jesus, and then the spirit of God just comes over me. At the moment, I didn't know the spirit of God. I just felt like this energy. Mm-hmm. It literally drops me to my knees. And I begin to weep and cry. And I feel like rushing water from the top of the head to the bottom of my feet. And I'm weeping, crying. And as I'm weeping and I'm crying, I'm cussing in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, what the beep is going on? <laughs> but I'm crying. Like, I can't control it. I can't get up. I just feel this thing over me and then i begin to feel like a rushing wind coming on the inside of me just taking all the junk and then i began to see all these images of when i was like four years old and my uncle was going to beat my mom with like a wooden chair or like when i was seven years old and i would cry by myself in the bathroom because i never had my dad or 12 years old and one of the women that raised me she passed away like in a really bad car accident and i got to see her and then 16, a girlfriend that had had an abortion, like all these things that really marked my life, right? That really hurt me. And then, you know, so many other, so many other things that happened. And at the end of it, at the end of those visions, I mean, by this point, now I'm weeping, crying out of pain because all this stuff is just coming out. Mm. And at the end of it, I hear a voice and the voice tells me, Alan, I've always been there for you, but I've been waiting for the moment that you will open up your heart to me. Mm. And then I was just in the floor, bro. I don't know how long I was there, just weeping, crying. I remember at the end, I walk outside, I look up to the stars and I said, God, I give you my life. And after that, all my addictions were broken. I go back to my neighborhood 
and my friends in the, are in the back uh, getting high. And, and I just began to preach the gospel to them. And uh, I ended up leading some of my friends to the Lord. One of them is now a pastor. Another one now leads a, a home at a rehab center. And uh, um, yeah, from the, those early days when I first got saved when I was 19. Mm, wow. And, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, and that's how my life was transformed. <laughs> wow. That's, that's really cool. That's really cool to hear. Um, so like after you became a Christian, did, did you still struggle with, like you're, you're obviously still living in LA. Did you still struggle with um, like drugs and alcohol and, and yeah, because you're still kind of in that culture. Um, what did that look like? Like after you became a Christian and I guess impacting your culture around you? No, man, I didn't. It was like a hitting a light switch. I just gone like all, any craving, anything just gone. I, I mean, I haven't done drugs ever since and I'm 31 now. That was when I was wow. 19. Wow. Yeah, it was just it was like hitting a light switch. I, I mean, I started getting involved with, with the church. I started a, a, a Bible study at my neighborhood. Um, and, and I just remember those early days. I, I would uh, just read my Bible every day, just being, spend uh, hours just weeping in his presence. I literally felt like I had a dad reading stories to me. And uh, it was it was uh, it was such a, a nice, a beautiful face of when I first got saved and mm. got to learn the Bible with mm. him. And mm-hmm. yeah. And, and so, yeah. So that's yeah. So no, no, no. It's it just just a miracle. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's that's really, really cool. Mm. So, um, yeah, after this, I guess we have um, about five minutes left is what my timer is saying here. Um I guess share, share with us what guy's been doing since then and continuing to, to lead you and, and to show you things. And I know you've been involved in um, Nick Vujicic's ministry. You worked along Nick for a little while, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> if you can wrap up the past uh, couple of years, um, you know, and what guy's been doing in your life. Yeah. Um, after I left the Bible study, I, I was discipling some of my friends right after I got saved. And then I, so I must have been 20, like a year and a half later, I meet this guy that came from North Cal. His name is Brian Barcelona. He wrote a book. It's called The Jesus Club um, about the story of what, what happened after. But he he came to, to L.A. and uh, he invited me to join his ministry. He had seen revival happen in North Cal. He led a few thousand teenagers to the Lord in a span of six months. And so I, I, at this time I was now going, I was full-time in college. I had, I had three jobs. I was leading a Bible study. I was involved at the church and he told me, Hey bro, drop everything and we'll see revival in LA. So I, I did, I dropped everything. I, I moved in with him to Selmar and for a whole year, nothing happened. We we're just praying, 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 praying and fasting. And, and it was just us two in the beginning. And then our team grew to five and then doors opened up and, in high schools in LA. And then uh, uh, we started seeing thousands of students give their lives to the Lord. We will pray for the sick. They will get healed. Um, people started getting healed uh, and just a bunch of people started getting saved. Um, we, I did this for seven years and then we started and then we started uh, partnering with different churches all over LA, uh, training them, preaching the gospel at their high schools. And every week we were reaching about 10,000 teenagers with the gospel. And there will be days where we will go, we'll preach a message for 15 minutes and halfway through the message, imagine a gym filled with 400, 400, 500 kids and half of them are weeping, crying to the friends of God. 
And so we saw this for, for years. And then at seven years into it, the Lord speaks to me and he tells me it's time to leave. And then after that, I start working for Nick Wojcik. Um, I worked for him for a year. He, um, and then uh, uh, he moved to Texas. I, I didn't, I, I couldn't move. I could, he invited me to go with him, but I just couldn't. Uh, I was about to have a baby by then. Uh, been married for six years now. And then, uh, yeah, and then now I'm a youth pastor. <laughs> I've been a youth pastor, pastor for three months. <laughs> yeah. And it's been amazing. I, yeah, so. Wow, yeah. wow. That's that is really, really cool, Alan, to see you. Yeah, what God has has done. And I'm sure if you if you look back at when you were when you were younger, you know, as a teenager, um, probably a lot of people would possibly have looked at you and been like, man, he probably won't amount to much. You know, he's addicted to drugs. He's in the gang culture, not involved in gangs, but, you know, in that culture. Um, And but but to see God pull you out of all of that and then um, to to lead you and allow you to just lead thousands of others um, to him. And, you know, he's put you in different ministries um, and seeing those ministries thrive. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's really, really cool to hear about. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for, for taking the time here to share with us. I guess um, if you could wrap up, I think we have like 30 seconds. Um, if you could say one thing uh, to the general youth population of America today, like what would you like to say? Uh Right now is the time to plow and to preach the gospel and to be bold because I, there's an awakening that's already happening in America. And we need to go out there and preach the gospel and show his love and always ask yourselves, what's your life teaching others? Mm. Am I really being a disciple or am I a Sunday, Sunday service Christian? Mm, mm. You know, and so, yeah, I think that's what I would say. Wow. Can't say it any better myself. All right, guys. So unfortunately, um, my timed recording stopped and cut me off before we could do the the final outro and say goodbye to Alan. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have um, Zoom Premium. Shout out Zoom, uh, sponsor me. Um, but yeah, thanks. I want to say thanks to Alan for just coming on and, and sharing his heart and what God has been doing in his life. And also thanks to you guys for listening and for keeping up with the Let It Shine podcast. And yeah, it was something that could help and would help me and the podcast itself is if you just subscribe uh, to the podcast feed. I don't do a great job at announcing and notifying when a new podcast episode goes up and goes live. So if you just, yeah, subscribe to the the podcast, wherever you're listening to your podcasts, um, it'll notify you when, when there's a new episode and you'll find it in your new episodes there. So uh, if you do that, you could keep up uh, with the, the episodes and you could listen to them in a more timely manner. So yeah, thanks again for, for listening and we'll see you next episode.